uh, you know, the book of Acts ends in kind of an interesting fashion. You know, I remember years ago seeing the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy in the theaters. And I remember the first one, I've not read the books, and maybe you've read the books, and so you were, you know, maybe you were all read up and you were ready for that when those movies came out. And uh, I was not, had not read the books, and so I go uh, to the theater to see the first movie. I've heard all this about it, you know, how much money was spent to make this movie. And uh, to be honest with you, my thought was sitting there watching it, I forget how old I was at the time. This has been, what, 15 plus years ago. I remember thinking, you know, it's kind of slow, right? And then towards the end, I felt like, okay, this is kind of picking up a little bit. And then there's this point where they're like in this boat, and they're, I can't remember everything, but they're like, they're finally going to this place that you're building for them to go towards. Now, look, the movie's finally getting good. It's three hours long. I feel like I'm finally getting into it. And it just went off. The credits started rolling. You know, I'm like, what in the world? What an awkward ending. Right? I, I, was, I was like, what? So I heard talking to people like, have you not read the books? I'm like, no, I haven't read the books. You know, that's why I watched the movie. Right? That's why they make movies. So you don't have to read the books. I'm just kidding. But they were like, well, if you'd read the, you know, that's just how the book is. You've got to wait for part two. And I'm like, well, in movie time, that's like three more years, right? It's like no part two. And so it was just unfinished, to be continued, right? Sometimes movies and books and stories in that way, they're just kind of like to be continued. And you don't feel like you have all your answers answered in your head, all your questions answered in your head. And the book of Acts is going to kind of end that way a little bit today. It's going gonna, it's gonna to leave you wondering what happens to Paul? What happened to Peter? What happened to all these guys that we've kind of journeyed with in the early church? And the reason, you know, the Gospels don't do that. When the Gospels end, it's kind of like, you know, Jesus is resurrected, Jesus is ascending, and we're awaiting His return. So it's kind of got, it's got a little bit of, there's, a, there's an anticipation that we wait His return, but there's at least a little bit of a bow on the end of it. Well, the Gospels are about Jesus. But Acts is not about Paul. It's not about Peter. It's not about the Apostles. It's still about Jesus, but it's about the work of God's Spirit in His church, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, fulfilling the Great Commission, and how the Spirit of God moves and works through the church. And so as we come to the end, we're going to see here in just a moment, we're going to ask some questions that are left unanswered. It's a little bit to be continued. And that's the way Acts is for today. Now, as we pick up in Acts 28, we kind of remind you of where we were last week. Last week we were in Acts chapter 20, and we saw that Paul came back to this place called um, Miletus and he met the Ephesian elders there. He just left Ephesus and went, went somewhere else and he comes back and he meets them at this little place to, to invest in them, to charge them. One another. they're probably not ever going to see him again and uh, you know, to warn them about some false teaching that's going to arise. We talked about that last week. And then he told them in that message that he was headed to Jerusalem and that he knew trouble awaits him in Jerusalem. But he was going anyway because that's where God wants him to go. And we, what you find as you journey through Acts after that is you see he does, he goes to Jerusalem, he continues to preach the gospel, and some Jews from Asia, where he had just been, who had had some conflicts with him, they come over to Jerusalem and they cause Paul problems there. They cause a big riot, they cause a big tumult to rise up. Paul ends up arrested. And for the rest of Acts, we see Paul in Roman custody. And that's at the next several chapters we see him journeying through that, giving account, giving testimony after testimony, standing before government official after government official, 
and traveling from Jerusalem to Rome. And Luke's gospel for the last several chapters leading up to chapter 28 is very concerned with Paul getting to Rome. And it shows us how the gospel has spread throughout these regions because Rome is like, I mean, it kind of represents in a sense the ends of the earth. It is, it is the cultural capital of the world in that sense. This is the most influential city in the world at that time. This is New York City, or if you're, if you're on the other side of the pond, so to speak, London. I mean, it, it, is, it is the prime place, right? It's the, it's the cultural impactor, the political impactor of the known world at that time. And the gospel's already in Rome. The church has already been planted there, but now the early church's greatest missionary is making his way to Rome, and God has let it be known to Paul that he must testify in Rome. God wants him there. And Luke it begins to kind of, his account begins to kind of follow Paul to Rome. He's very concerned about the gospel being represented there in the, so to speak, ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 28, we're going to pick up in verse 11. And then we're basically going to read for the most part down through verse 31. But just for right now, let's just start with verses 11 through 22. It says, After three months... We set sail in a ship. Now notice the we there. Luke is on this journey now. We talked about that a while back. Luke is riding himself in now. He is, he is one of Paul's you know, traveling companions. So they set sail in a ship that had wintered in the, in the island, the ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Uh, the, these false gods that were, that they would put on the front of the ship, they were the protector of, 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 the, of, the, of, the, of the ships, of the sailors and all that of, of those days. And so that's how they thought of them. So they had these, these figureheads of these twin gods on the front of their ship. We're going to talk in just a moment about why after three months they're getting on the ship. Now look down at verse 14. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days and so we came to Rome. So that, so they talked about some other places they stopped but Luke's point here is to get us to Rome. Verse 15. And the brothers there the church, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Abias and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Though I had no charge to bring against my nation, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everyone, that everywhere, it is spoken against. Alright. So, Paul's right there for just a second. Now, here's what's happening. We're going to see Paul camped out in Rome for a couple of years that we know of. Um, and Luke's going to, in just a moment, we read the rest of the passage a little bit later. We're going to see that Luke's going to just kind of leave Paul there. That's the way it's going to, that's the way it's going to end. In fact, if you kind of look down, we're going to come back and read the rest of it. I just want you to look down at the last verse of Acts. Last verse there. It says that 
Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that phrase, I wanted to read that before we get to it, because I want you to see that phrase there, without hindrance, is a key, key Greek word for understanding the ending of Acts and what Luke is doing here. It, that Greek word just means unhindered, right? And the picture that Luke is giving us is a triumphant picture of the gospel. That as we follow through Acts, we see trials and tribulations and persecutors and Christians being killed and governments trying to stop the spread of Christianity and the Jewish leadership coming against the spread of Christianity and all this sort of stuff. But it ends on this climactic note of the gospel going forth from Rome unhindered. Even though Paul's in prison. He's under house arrest. Unhindered, the gospel goes forth. And on one end, he wants us to see how they're not causing, you know, the, the, the Christians weren't trying to like usurp the government or anything like that. That there had been a time in Rome where you could, they let Paul openly preach this way. But more than that, I think he wants us to see that, that that's the picture he wants to leave us with of the gospel. Is that it triumphs. That the gospel wins. That the gospel goes, that you can't stop the spread of the gospel through the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That it continues to spread unhindered as God's people boldly proclaim it. So I want us to kind of examine the whole passage this morning from this perspective. How do we live in light of a triumphant gospel? As people who are living post-Acts 28, right? Who are continuing to live out the mission, how do we live in light of the gospel's victory and the fact that it proceeds unhindered, but yet at the same time, the work that we're called to is unfinished. That's the other reason there's no nice neat little bow in the end of Acts. We're not finished. There's still people who have not heard. Jesus has not returned. So we still have a job to do, which is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to make disciples wherever we're at, wherever people are, so that people come to know Jesus and follow Him. So let's examine this passage from this perspective. Now, in the first section here, what I want you to notice that in, in light of the triumphant gospel, in light of the fact of the gospel's victory, how it just can, proceeds unhindered, number one, I want you to know that in your Christian life, perseverance <coughs> is possible. It's more than possible. <coughs> Genuine Christianity is not just possible. It's certain. But I want to see it from the perspective of, of perseverance. Look, look back at verse 11, the first verse we read. It says, after three months, we set sail on a ship. And so we picked up somewhere there. Now, why are they, why are they at, where are they leaving? And why are they having to leave in this ship? Well, they have been shipwrecked for these three months. Uh, and so let me back up and kind of explain. They've been shipwrecked because when they left to go to Rome, they encountered incredible storms in Acts 27, and Paul actually, as the prisoner, one of the prisoners on the ship, kind of helps lead them and navigate, steps up to the plate, and kind of helps navigate them through what to do in the storm. But then they shipwreck, and they're on this island for a little while. Paul's bit by a snake, but unharmed because God protects him, and he's, he's praying for people, God's healing people, incredible things are happening, and then finally they find a ship that they can get on to head back towards Rome. So that's kind of what's going on there. And then he gathers the local leaders when he gets to Rome, it says. And notice what Paul says to the Jewish leadership. He says, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. That is a summation of Acts chapters 21 through 27. I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Back in Acts 21, Paul heads to Jerusalem. 
And just as was prophesied, he's arrested as he preaches the gospel. The Jews from Asia that I mentioned who stirred up the tumult. And he's placed in the hands of the Romans. The Roman tribune takes Paul. And it says, Paul says, When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty. And you see that. They're constantly kind of saying to one another in, in the dialogue and acts. They're kind of like, you know, this guy really hasn't done anything wrong. I'm not sure why we have him. But they keep holding me. They keep the people happy. And in chapter 23, Paul is set before the Jewish leadership council. <coughs> the Roman tribune wants to know why he's being accused by the Jews, why he's arrested in the first place. So he has him go before the Jewish leadership council in chapter 23. And they get into a very divisive argument because Paul looks out, he recognizes that there's Pharisees and there's Sadducees, and he says, you know what, the real problem is here is that I preach the resurrection that people will like. And it just causes this huge debate, right? And it's just, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're, they're arguing with one another, everybody's fighting over this, it's all about the resurrection, and they're mad at Paul, and they're angry at Paul, and so the, the Roman tribune actually had to take him away to keep him from, like, just pulling to pieces. And he's placed in jail as he waits, not knowing what's going to happen to him. In Acts 23.11, Luke tells us, The following night the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So why is Luke so concerned with Paul's journey to Rome? And why is Paul so intent on getting to Rome, this back order of Acts? Because Jesus told Paul, You must testify in Rome. And where Jesus says go, Paul says, I must go. From this point on, we see Paul very focused on that. And notice in his time of isolation, when he's all alone and probably feels like he's living on an island, who stands beside Paul? The Lord. The Lord stands beside Paul. And in chapter 23, some of the Jews begin to plot to kill Paul. His nephew discovers this. We don't think about Paul having a family, right? Having another family. But his nephew, his, his sister's son discovers this and, and Paul has him let it be known to the, the Roman leadership and so, so, so they can keep Paul from being murdered by these people that want to kill him. And in chapter 24, Paul has to go before Felix to give an account. And at this point, nobody can figure out what Paul has done wrong. But Felix ends up holding Paul for two years. Two years. Even though he can't find anything he's done wrong, for two years the text tells us that he keeps Paul. He's finally replaced, right? He kind of rotates out of his job or whatever. Somebody else comes in. And in chapter 25, Paul gets to make an Paul, Paul asks to be able to make an appeal to Caesar. He, he appeals to Caesar. He says, especially you guys have had me here two years. I haven't done anything wrong. And they're offering to take Paul back to Jerusalem to stand trial. Paul's like, that doesn't sound like a very good idea. And nor have I done anything against those people. You Romans are the ones keeping me. And you're governing official Caesar. And I'm a Roman citizen. So I want to go stand before Caesar. Okay. Right? So that begins the journey towards Rome. And in chapter 26, Paul goes before Agrippa, another Roman leader, and shares his testimony. And we see as he stands before this government leader, who kind of holds his faith in his hands, he's preaching Jesus to him and trying to persuade him to convince him to become a Christian. Agrippa actually says to him, in a short time as this, would you actually persuade me to be a Christian? And, and Paul basically looks at him and says, you betcha, I wish I could. I, I, I wish that everyone would, would understand and know and believe what I have found to be true except for these chains that I have. In other words, I wish all that's for me for you except for that you wouldn't have to suffer in prison like I'm doing. And so in chapter 27, he, begin, he gets on the boat with the other prisoners to go towards Rome. The storm comes, a shipwreck, they have to get on another boat after a few months, and then in chapter 28, he lands in Rome. And what we're seeing in those chapters, what Luke is showing us, I believe, primarily, 
is that Paul is a picture of perseverance and a picture of endurance in the midst of trials, persecution, and difficulty. That's one takeaway from Acts as a whole, is that the gospel of Jesus triumphs in the face of trials and persecution and troubles, natural disasters, anything you can think of. Nothing can stop it. And Paul, throughout this time, encounters difficult people and difficult circumstances. And so 2,000 years later, every Christian still deals with difficult people and difficult circumstances. And well, Jesus comes back. Paul had to deal with religious troublemakers. You know somebody else had to deal with religious troublemakers? Jesus had to deal with religious troublemakers, right? Some of the same crowd. Much like Jesus had to contend with Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes, Paul contends with the Jewish leaders of his time who do not like him or the gospel that he preaches. But he also had to deal with government interference. Jesus was crucified by the Roman government. And it is they who are holding Paul in prison. And it is a Roman emperor who will later have Paul beheaded. Now, Acts doesn't tell us that, but most people believe that Paul, after this, is released at some point. And many scholars believe he went on to preach, possibly even in Spain, but at some point he's arrested again by the Romans, and this time is beheaded under Nero. So he faces religious troublemakers, government interference, and then just these storms and shipwreck that he endures, the natural disasters, this trials and tribulations of life, this bad things happening kind of thing. Things you can't explain. And you, as we read this, we need to be reminded over and over again that you may be living faithfully for Jesus and encounter difficult people and difficult circumstances. Encounter resistance in your Christian life. Encounter persecution. Jesus promises that in the Christian life. It's just another reminder of that. But also just the trials and difficulties of just living in a fallen world. Just the fact that the world we live in is broken, that we're awaiting the return of Christ, and until that time, until He comes, we know this world is falling, bad things happen, but God is at work, and God is sovereign over it. He's at work in even those situations to bring about our good as His people. So you could be living faithfully for Jesus just like the Apostle Paul was, and you could lose your job. You could be mistreated at home or in the workplace or anywhere else. You could get sick. You could lose a loved one. You could die. There's no nice, neat little promises in the Bible for the Christian that if you live faithfully, nothing bad will happen to you. Paul was living faithfully. I dare say more faithfully than any of us. He's living on mission. He's, he's, where's he going when he shipwrecks and almost dies and gets snake bitten? He's right smack dab in the center of the world. Who told him to go to Rome? Jesus says, you must go to Rome. In fact, when he stands before the, the Roman leadership, after he appeals to Caesar, they kind of look at each other and go, this guy could have been set free, but he's asked to go to Caesar now, so he's got to go to Caesar. Why did he ask to go to Caesar? Because Jesus said, you must testify in Rome, not Jerusalem, not be set free. You must go to Rome. So he says, I'm going to Rome. And right smack down in the center of God's will, he's in storms, he's shipwrecked, he's snake pit. And one day, he'll be beheaded in the center of God's will. In a very real sense, the center of God's will is the safest place we can be. That doesn't mean it's not risky or dangerous or harm can happen to us. It just means that we're doing what God wants us to do. And we see here, through all of this, Paul is persevering. He's persevering. He's enduring. I mean, he could have given up. He could have kind of washed his fingers and said, you know, enough's enough already, you know. 
Because I'll stay on living on this island, right? Think of the island life here. Yeah, wrong. But he continues to persevere, continues to preach the gospel, continues to plead with me. And the same gospel that triumphs throughout the world will triumph in the life of the believer. We see it triumphing in Paul's life too. Believers do not fall away. They persevere. They mess up. They wander. But ultimately we persevere, even through the trials and the pain and the difficulties. So this should stir us, when we see this, it should stir us to live with a humble confidence in the Gospel. Boasting not in us or our faith or what we can do, but in Christ and His Gospel and His power to keep us and His power to strengthen us, to endure. Listen to what Paul writes to the Roman church before he gets to Rome. In Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 34 Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a pretty difficult verse. We just kind of read right over because we like all the love stuff in that chapter. Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Paul says, persevere. More than that, I'm more than a conqueror through Christ because of His love in me, because of what He's done in me, because of what Christ has done for me. If He's for me, the whole world can be against me. The whole world can fall apart around me. But Christ is for me. And so he lives his life with this gospel confidence that enables him to persevere through these things. When we have that same gospel, we can have that same perseverance. You're more than a conqueror through Christ who loved us. That's fuel for your perseverance. That's fuel for your... The, gospel, the truth of the gospel, what Christ has done for you, is fuel for your perseverance. The fact that the gospel that Paul was preaching and proclaiming to these people that he wanted them to hear was the same thing that he used for the fuel that helped him to continue to persevere. He writes that to the Romans when he's going through things like this. When he's encountering these kind of trials. We're always looking for new ways to power things, right? In our world. Whether it's fossil fuel or solar energy or wind energy. You ever driven up to like Illinois or somewhere and you'll just see just like miles of like just windmills. Wind energy. We're always looking for ways to power things, right? Because we want to take energy and make it a less depreciating resource. We want to, we want we, we live a lifestyle now, right? That just requires a lot of energy. We we need more energy. So we're always looking for ways to find energies and make it cheaper and all that sort of stuff because we need energy. Spiritually you need energy too. Spiritually you need energy. And God has given you his spirit and God has given you his gospel to supply that en- that energy. And in the Christian life, as long as you're abiding in Christ, you're under no threat of running out of energy supply. You might grow tired, you might grow weary. Not saying that won't happen, but Christ and His gospel can supply you endlessly with all you need to be more than a conqueror through Him. He empowers your faithfulness. Paul wasn't kept by the power of Paul, but by the power of Christ. And we persevere as we lean on Christ, rest in Christ, strive, we fight, we wrestle, we do these things, but from a position of confident rest in Christ and what He's done. And the gospel triumphs through us and in us. Look with me in verse 23. Acts 28, starting in verse 23. Let's read the rest of the passage. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. 
From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced of what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I will heal them. Verse 28, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. second thing we learn about living the life of this triumphant gospel is not only is perseverance possible and not only is perseverance ours, but persuading others is necessary. As, as we go through life, there is a need, there is a calling, there is we, we are to be persuaders of people. And we're not always comfortable with that. When Paul got a chance to stand before the Jews in Rome, what does he do? He says he preaches the gospel, testifying to them the kingdom and trying to convince them about Jesus. That word, convince, can also mean persuade. We also see that earlier in Acts, a few chapters before this, he tries to persuade Agrippa. Agrippa says, you're trying to persuade me to be a Christian. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. This is a common thing with Paul. And here's the point that I'm trying to make. We're not simply information deliverers. The good news, the gospel is good news. It needs to be delivered. It needs to be announced. It's what has been done, right? But in the New Testament, you do not just see people delivering the news. They seek to persuade others that the news is true and that they need the news. Information exchange without persuasion at the heart is cold and lifeless. Right? I mean, if that was true, I mean, we could just kind of go around like robots and just, you know, just write the gospel on your windshield and drive around and, you know, just leave tracks everywhere. Nothing wrong with tracks. We just leave them everywhere and never build a relationship with anybody. Sit down with somebody and go, yeah, Jesus died for your sins and you need to repent and believe the gospel. But hey, up to you, do what you want to do. That's not, you know, no, he's persuading them. He's trying to convince them. His heart's involved. It's not just some lifeless exchange of information like, drop, you ever use Dropbox? Digital Dropbox? Where you, t- you need to give a file to somebody it's too large to e- email. So you upload it to Digital Dropbox and they go download it, right? It's a pretty cold exchange. You're not like, please download this, you need this. You know, you're crazy. I mean, there's no like, it's not like that. It's just like total exchange, right? It's like the mailman. He comes and delivers. He's not emotionally attached to my mail. It's just there, right? No plea. That's not a way to share Jesus. We're supposed to desire to convince and to persuade. That's why our tone matters. That's why our lifestyle matters. That's why... Love matters. That's why these things matter because we are supposed to wrap this information in a heart of persuasion, of convincing, and a desire. Listen, what does he persuade them with? It says the scriptures. Showing them from the Old Testament, the law of the prophets, that Jesus is the Messiah. So he's not manipulating. That's not what I'm talking about. 
I'm not talking about playing on people's emotions. I'm not talking about guilting people. I'm not ta- that's not what I'm talking about. He's taking the Bible and persuading them with the Scriptures. We persuade with the Scriptures, but our heart is supposed to be in it. It's supposed to be with a heart and a desire to see people come to Christ. It's not supposed to be with cold detachment. Paul, Paul showed these Jewish leaders how Jesus was the Messiah from both the law and the prophets. Because that is the tool of persuasion. We go to the scriptures. But people need to be convinced. They need to be persuaded because too much is at stake. Listen, not everyone will be converted. But everyone needs to be converted. And that creates a problem, right? <laughs> and some will be converted, though. But no one deserves to be converted. And in Paul, we see here as he's preaching to them, he says, he makes it very clear to them. We learn from this, from Isaiah 6 is where he's quoting from. Not everyone he was going to share with the gospel is going to be converted. Here he's specifically talking about fulfillment of prophecy, right? The Jews at that time, kind of most of them rejecting the leadership and particularly rejecting Jesus. And so he turns to the Gentiles. <laughs> Biblical persuasion is not a is not from a position of faith in our tactic or faith in our, the way we explain things or, or the way we share things or our personal testimony, but it's trusting God's sovereignty and the power of the gospel. And that's what we see here with Paul. As he shares with him, knowing, knowing that many of them were not going to believe. It says some believe, some disbelieve, and then he turns to the Gentiles. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And look at that passage from Isaiah 6. From Isaiah 6. That's what he's quoting from when he says that. It talks about hearing. It talks about seeing. But at the same time, it talks about not being able to hear and not being able to see. And what Isaiah is saying is that it's possible to cognitively take in and understand what's being said spiritually but not have spiritual eyes and ears to take it and apply it. In other words, not act on it with your heart. He's saying it's possible to miss heaven by 18 inches. Heard that? It's possible to understand it here and to take it in and understand it. Okay, I get what you're saying, but for never to take effect here. And that's what the prophecy was that was, that was going on then that Isaiah was talking about, that Paul was applying to them. That started even in Christ's ministry. The people were, you know what you're saying, but no, I reject, right? Ears to hear, eyes to see, take it in, understand what, no, but not really understand to the point that it seeks down your heart and you believe. Still today, we need to understand it's possible to hear and to see, but to not really hear, not really see. It's possible to be to hear the truth weekly or daily and to not believe with the heart. If people could sit and listen to Paul explain the gospel or hear Jesus preach and see Him heal people and yet reject Him, mind you me, it is very possible to sit at North Park or any other church in Orlando or any other church around the world and to hear the gospel on a regular basis and understand it and be able to explain it to others and never have an impact and change your heart. Maybe today you believe it. With your head, you kind of understand it. You kind of, I get it, I get it. But it's never sucked down in your heart. It's never changed your life. You've never rested in it. You've never trusted Christ. Never 
believe from the heart. See, when we become persuaded or convinced, as it says, we'll live out our lives like we're convinced and like we're persuaded. We will be a room full of convinced convincers, persuaded persuaders. People are convinced they come into the kingdom. Paul's teaching about the kingdom. That's the reign of God, the reign of God in Christ Jesus. And when people believe the gospel, they come under the reign of Christ, they submit to, they yield to Him. Christ becomes their king. And our life begins to look like we believe Christ is king. Because He's ruling and reigning in our life. Has that happened to you? This is Paul's first statement right here. Just ask, has that happened to you? Has there been a time in your life where you understood the gospel? You're a sinner made in God's image, who needs to be rescued from your sin, that Christ has died for your sin, that Christ has been buried and has risen from the dead, and you've turned from your sin and believed in Christ, and you've genuinely done that in your heart, and it's produced life change in your life. Many of these people sit and they've heard, but that didn't happen. Have you been convinced to the point that your life is convinced? heart is convinced? And as a church, we need to realize we're called to share the gospel and to get the gospel out, but we're to do it in a persuasive manner. Not an arm-twisting manner. Not an annoying manner. But with a heart and a desire to see people converted. Trusting and knowing that we don't save people. We can't save people. Only God saves people. The Holy Spirit has to move on the human heart. The Holy Spirit has to quicken the heart. The Holy Spirit has to work in the life of someone. And they have to repent and believe the gospel. We can't do that for them either but we should try to persuade them, call them to faith. The scriptures are that way. The scriptures themselves are, are persuasive. It's not just cold words written on a page. You notice that? I mean, it's written, most of it, in narrative form. It's stories, compelling stories, showing you what happens when you don't believe and when you do believe and when you follow God and when you don't follow God. The scriptures are written in a very persuasive way. Not just here's some information, do with it what you will. It's Jesus is the Son of God. Proof, proof, proof. Miracle, miracle, miracle. Resurrection, right? It's all very persuasive. Repent, believe, right? Judgment is sure. Repent, believe. It's throughout the Scriptures. The Scriptures are persuasive. We should be persuasive. Persuade with the Scriptures. We do all this because it's true. Because the Gospel is true. It's triumphing all over the world. And we stand on the very Word of God with thousands of years of history behind us showing that the Gospel has the power to change life. If we're convinced, if we've been persuaded, shouldn't we, like Paul, not only want the information out there, but to actually see people persuaded? And we see that throughout. The third thing, the third thing I want us to see, the final thing, is that multiplication is certain. As the gospel triumphs throughout the world, the making of disciples is a certain. It's not an if. But is. <laughs> Jesus is making disciples. <laughs> may or may not be happening. Your life, our life, but it's happening all over the world. And multiplication is a certain. What does Paul say in verse 28? Paul says, The gospel is going to the Gentiles and they will listen. Not they might listen, they will listen. Now, that doesn't mean, obviously, everybody does it. But the idea is, is that there's going to be people that are going to believe. Not everyone, but some will listen. Some will believe. 
and they will disciple others and friends and children and the gospel continues. And that's why 2,000 years later there's still Christians on the earth and more than there were 2,000 years ago because the gospel triumphs and multiplication is certain. That's another major takeaway from Acts. Because the gospel is unstoppable, multiplication is certain. People will be saved, the church will multiply. The Great Commission is our mandate and it is guaranteed to be fulfilled. You understand that? The one thing Jesus has told the church you better do, he is ensured that it will be done. The question is never, is it going to happen? It's are we going to participate? Look, notice how Luke bookends Acts. I love this. Acts 1-3. I'm going to go back and read it. Not on the screen, but I'll read it to you. Acts 1-3. He opens up with this in the third verse. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. That's the opening to Luke. So the book starts with Luke explaining how Jesus hung out with the disciples for 40 days before departing and was teaching them about the kingdom of God, discipling them. And then Jesus tells them the Holy Spirit will come, right? They'll be his witnesses. They'll take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Acts 1-8. And then Pentecost happens. And the remainder of Acts shows us how followers of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, take the gospel to the ends of the earth, churches are started, disciples are being made, and the process repeats itself over and over, city to city, person to person, in midst of trials, in midst of persecution, in midst of difficult things. And then you get to the end of the book. And the guy who at the beginning of the book is the biggest enemy to the church, Saul, who we're introduced to in Acts 8. In Acts 28, He's proclaiming the kingdom of God to these people and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness without hindrance. Luke opens with Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God. Jesus, the Son of God, who gives the Great Commission, the mandate. Paul, who at the time Jesus gives it, hates Jesus, hates the church, wants to destroy the church, and by the end of the book, he's doing what Jesus was doing. Right? Because multiplication is not an if. It is an is. It is going to happen. People are going to be saved. There are going to be crazy life transformation stories that are going to happen. People are going to come to faith in Christ. As the gospel is preached, as the gospel is proclaimed, not everybody, but some will believe God is in the saving business. He's in the rescuing business. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and that had changed. Triumphant gospel works. Works. Multiplication, replication, fruitfulness is in the very DNA of the gospel. God has ordained it to be so. And the book ends, and you're thinking, what happened to Paul? I mentioned earlier, what happened to Paul? What about Caesar? And the whole point is, like I said, they're not the stars of the story. Luke's not the star. Peter's not the star. Paul's not the star. It's a book about God's Spirit working through His people to spread the gospel. And the story is continuing today. And we take up the mantle that's been passed down to us from the apostles to proclaim the kingdom of God, to teach about the Lord Jesus Christ, to do it with all boldness, knowing that the gospel cannot be hindered. And even if we're hindered, the gospel continues to go forward. The gospel continues to go forward. And we can obey the Great Commission and join in the Great Commission with confidence and boldness knowing that there's work left unfinished. Everyone's not heard. Jesus is not returned. The mandate stood there. Made the And we do this knowing 
that the gospel doesn't fail. It cannot be stopped. And disciples will be made. Like I said, the question is not, will it prevail? The question is, will we participate? Will we participate? Will we? The, it acts ends the way it does. It's kind of like an invitation for you to join the journey. Will we participate? You know, y'all know I'm a big sports fan. Talk about that from time to time. Well, college football, everybody's got their, their thing that they root for. Maybe yours is not college football. Maybe it's baseball. Maybe you're not into sports at all. But if you like sports, it's baseball, football, soccer, basketball, whatever, right? And I love watching games. I love watching sporting games. But if I was ever invited to play, right? Like as an Alabama football fan, they were say, hey, man, you want to suit up next week and play? <laughs> I got four years of eligibility. Still there. Five, actually. Right? Five play four. Um, you know, I wouldn't. A, I don't want to get hurt. B, I don't want to cause my team to lose. If they put me on the field, I would probably have C, I don't want to be embarrassed. That'd be bad in there. I'd rather watch. I'd rather cheer. To be honest, I'd rather complain. <laughs> I can't believe what well, I got to be an great office coordinator. And too many Christians feel that way about jumping all in with the Great Commission and living life. It's almost like they think they're going to hurt the team or embarrass themselves. But if you're a believer, you're already on the team. And the worst thing about a player is one that wants to be a spectator. Right? You get on the football field, you want to spectate instead of play, you know what happens? You get hurt. You get hurt. But some Christians would rather watch and cheer and complain than participate. But we can dive into the mission of multiplying disciples with full confidence that God's at work and wants to work in us and wants to work through us because we have got a rich history to see and to know what God is doing, what He's doing through the gospel, and that we have a message that cannot be thwarted. And the Spirit of God, same Spirit of God that is well, Paul, that dwells every believer today, He wants to work through. The ending of Acts is inviting you and me into the story to participate in the continuance of the mission. So what does that mean for you today? What does it mean for you today to join in that mission? It might mean joining a Bible-believing church. That might mean for you that this is where God has you. It might mean here. It might mean plugging in more, getting more involved in community, serving. It might mean building relationships with people to share your faith with, neighbors, friends, and family, and co-workers. What, what's the next step for you in navigating, living on mission? We need to get busy being the unstoppable church that holds forth the unstoppable gospel turning to our roots. So let me ask you today. One, have you been convinced? Have you been persuaded about the gospel? Does your life show? Two, as a believer, we know trials are certain, but we know what God's caused. Maybe today you've been sidetracked. That happens. I just want to call you today to just to pray, to come back to God. Maybe there's sin that needs to Maybe you're just hurting. Maybe it's not sin. Maybe you've been hurt and sidetracked. People get hurt by the church. They get hurt by others in the church. 
kind of get over on the sideline. Maybe God's calling you, nudging you to get back in the game. Spend some time with God in prayer. We're gonna, in just a moment, we're gonna, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to stand and we're going to sing. If you need prayer for anything, I would love to pray with you this morning. If you've got questions about being a Christian, let us know on the connection card. Drop it off the plate. Come talk to me during this invitation. Come see me after the service. If I can pray with you about anything, I would love to do that this morning. Let's pray.